0: Today, I am super honored to be joined by Lucy May Taylor. As a death awareness educator and writer, Lucy's work and words are devoted to transforming the ways our resistance to impermanence influences our willingness to truly get to know ourselves and the people who we care about. Her desire for each of us is to not allow the fear of change or uncertainty to overshadow the magic of belonging that comes when we are able to live, love, and be loved as our fullest self. Through her online school, Mortal Wisdom, Lucy's classes and courses guide us to recenter the neglected parts of ourselves, let go of what no longer feels good, and stop resisting the necessary transitions that would move us into wholeness. Welcome, Lucy. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. Where we always start on the Needy Podcast is with a question about how you tend to yourself on a daily basis. And one of the reasons I started this podcast was to really pull back the curtain on what it looks like, what it really looks like. And so I'm curious for you on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, how do you support yourself? How do you take care of yourself? And how has that changed?
1: Well, I'll start by saying that I hate the question. (laughs) <laughs> because that relationship with kind of tending to myself and caring for myself has been a very complex one for me. But when I was kind of thinking about it, I think in terms of like the last 10 years, like probably 99% of what that has looked like for me has really been getting to know myself. So very much in the trying to understand myself in the kind of typical personal development kind of style, but also just really going into what inspires me kind of following my path like the soul path I guess but I also have judgment to that because then I'm like there's a part of me that particularly for the last couple of years where I've really been wanting by tending to look way more physical and embodied and that has been I think a learning that's coming into me now so while it hasn't changed so much yet There's tiny parts of me that are changing that to the like basicness of, I now moisturize my skin (laughs) after a shower, which has actually been a conscious practice for me, which sounds ridiculous, but I think that just goes to show how disembodied my tending has been. And now that's my kind of conscious choice now that I really want the next 10 years to be way more around the physical embodiment realm.
0: Well, as somebody for whom moisturizing my body is one of my absolute least favorite things to do, I have to bribe myself to do it. I completely understand that idea of really getting to know ourselves and really being with ourselves. Thank you for sharing that. And I got so excited to hear about how you take care of yourself that I skipped right over you introducing yourself and your work. So oh, yeah. let's, <laughs> let's take it back to that. I would love to hear about why you do what, what do you, what you do and why you do what you do.
1: I am a death awareness writer and educator and what that looks like right now is really delving into supporting us to understand how our relationship with impermanence, death in the literal and metaphorical sense is kind of interrupting our willingness to really get to know ourselves and also the people who we care about in relationships. And that is really centered around loss aversion at its core. So looking at how our resistance to change, our resistance to transience is actually forming a block of really claiming what we desire for, I guess, fear from what sparks that might change. And I think where that came to me really was understanding that I mean, because I did start this whole work in my own kind of personal development journey that was the missing piece of how we often talk about change in what we're gaining and the gold at the end of the rainbow, I guess, and how there's an assumption that that is intrinsically enough inspiration and motivation to travel there. But then realizing that there's so much loss and so much uncertainty in that journey, because it's all very well, for example, saying, okay, I'm going to embody my deepest truth. I'm going to follow my desire but what if that desire means breaking up from a romantic relationship we've been in for well however long but it's significant to us or changing jobs or anything like that where we can then go into the loss aversion which is basically saying the fear or the discomfort of what I might lose is overshadowing the joy and the I guess, realignment to self that is on the other side of that loss. So my work is in that space there.
0: Which, you know, your work is so powerful. I recommend it to people all the time. And for everybody who's listening, you need Lucy's work, I promise you. What has been so powerful for me is this idea of loss aversion and really thinking about just noticing the places in my life, especially historically, but certainly still now where i'm more committed to circumventing, averting, protecting myself from loss than i am to really belonging to myself. it can be it can be hard to look at that. just for myself everything i want is tucked right in there so i have to look at it. so i'm wondering if you could talk to us about how some, I, I think on a very small scale, something that I hear a lot is this idea of, I don't want to try something, whether that's a active care for ourselves or that's a new career path or even like a new outfit, honestly, a new hair color. I don't know, but I don't want to try something because I'm afraid of being disappointed. that only wanting to extend ourselves past what is comfortable for a sure thing, like that idea of a sure thing. If I knew it was going to be successful, if I knew I was going to do it well, if I knew I was going to like it and therefore it was worth my time and effort, which of course we can never know any of those things. So what are your thoughts for somebody who might be struggling with that, that looming presence of disappointment and they're hovered in that place of, I want more, but I'm, I'm not willing to get uncomfortable for it.
1: Yeah and for me like that uncertainty or that liminal space where we step away from say point A before we yeah like you said without certainty of what point B will look at and feel like is I'd say completely connected to loss aversion and death denial because it is we do live in this illusion that anything is certain anyway but of course to some capacity and I think if we literally tapped into the uncertainty of everything and every moment like we wouldn't really be able to function so that there, there is a level of denial of that which is necessary for us to even go about our daily daily lives so I wouldn't I don't think it's necessarily the end goal to be super tuned into that but it's exactly what you said around like the disappointment well, and not necessarily explicitly the disappointment but it's like is the payoff right is the discomfort I'll only go into the discomfort if I can absolutely certainly say that the pe- it will be worth it, that I'll be happier. In the grand scheme of things, like what I would say is one happiness is such a slithery little thing anyway, that even if we, even if we do say have the certainty of that one thing, like the hair color is going to look fabulous, like nine times out of 10 in my experience, it has not looked fabulous, but if we get there, okay, great. And, and now what? That's not the end of your life, you know. That's not the that state is then not certain. Kind of one of my taglines is loss is always occurring, no matter what we do. So if we're feeling called to move towards something, whatever it be, even if it is just like a new style or getting out of a relationship, if we're feeling that call, what's the consequence of not following it? Okay, we might not go into the uncertainty, and we can feel a sense of safety or we might not be disappointed and we can stay at the kind of level that we are right now but the fact that we're being called to something means that there's something that's not satisfying us right now and staying in that state is not a gain like there's still a loss so I always kind of say to people well when we're trying to avoid some form of loss we are actually kind of compensating with a different loss and what is that loss and a lot of my work because I do talk a lot about relationships, is often that loss is like self-abandonment or not knowing ourselves on even a different level. It doesn't have to be as deep as abandoning a core desire, but it could be abandoning a sense of playfulness or fun, just experiment. And there's loss in that too. So that's why I kind of always say like, you know, we can try and avoid it, but it's there. And it's just about getting really super radically honest with ourselves about what loss is happening and which one's... As much as we can control it, are we okay with losing? And which ones are we are we not? But it's being consciousness and really understanding what we what's actually the cost of trying to keep the thing the same. You know.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of choosing between two things because I can see how in any relationship there's compromise that exists, and that idea of losing something, but being, being intentional about what, what's worth it to you, or at least being intentional about what choice you're actively making is such a beautiful way to put that. Thank you.
1: Mm, And I'll just say as well, like notice where we're prioritizing what we're willing to lose and what we're not. And a lot of the time there's, there's a lot of social conditioning in there. It's, it can be quite illuminating because if we're saying, oh, I'm, I'm willing to lose a whole, say, chunk of my self identity in order to stay in this relationship, this community, this job, this home, whatever it is. Like, get really clear to be like, well, why am I, why am I willing to do that? And that's quite an extreme example, but in some ways, it isn't because we do this in little and big ways every day. But I think it is quite telling about yeah, which losses we're actually one we don't even notice we're doing, or we don't even notice the loss because we're not choosing it it's a subconscious or a I guess a byproduct of our behavior but also then when we're aware of it like if we're willing to lose that get really curious about well, well why and is that coming from a true conscious place of I've weighed up the options and in my sovereign way I'm choosing or is it coming from a place of well I have to or I should or It's just the way it is for me to keep X, Y, Z.
0: Yeah, on your website, you write We live under the influence of a global culture that interrupts our innate ability to deal with death and loss. We are conditioned and enabled to push through pain and discomfort, to attach ourselves to identities, experiences, or relationships that aren't right for us, to be scared to let go. To be continuously achieving and expanding, to grieve in solitude and silence, to consume without regard, to bypass truth and hide within more palatable false realities. This is what it means to live in a death denying society. And I'm over ready to change that. I remember first reading these words and feeling really pulled in by that idea of the conditioning. And I know that for a lot of people who, Are listening to this podcast, they may be making decisions around loss. They may be diminishing their needs, making themselves small within their relationships in a multitude of ways. So the idea of opening the door to think about all of this might feel really overwhelming. And I'm wondering, where do you start with people who? are conditioned to deny these deaths in 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 so many large and small ways every single day. How how do you start the conversation with people who are pulled into this concept but also scared?
1: I mean, at the moment I would very much respond to, to where they where they're at. But in an overall general kind of way, I would say a revealing but slightly more gentle way of going in is to say, what am I making loss mean? And we can start asking that question from anything. I I lost, I lose my favorite pen. What am I making that loss mean? I'm an idiot. Maybe that could be it. Or I'm I don't deserve these nice things, or you know, that kind of thing. Or and then lo- move it up. Okay, if I lost something that's got a high monetary value, what what am I making that mean about me? If I lost this relationship, if I lost this job, what are the stories I'm telling myself about that? And I think I mean, story, the way we create stories is always going to have conditioning in there. But I think that's that's a nice place to start. And then kind of second to that, okay, well, what now? Like, is it true?
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about how this conversation for me personally feels so much more present right now, especially, you know, at this time of recording it, we're still like staunchly in pandemic days and how I when, when you gave those examples, my brain immediately went to this place, which was like everything, but the stakes feel higher. And I wonder, I don't know if that's because there's so much uncertainty right now. And my body feels like it just cannot process one single more uncertain thing. But I'm curious if you're hearing more of that as people are grappling with either either death or really digging their heels into loss aversion during this time this this conversation is speeding up for people
1: oh absolutely absolutely I've definitely seen a bigger uptake in people wanting to talk about this but I would say as well like in terms of our capacity to sit with uncertainty is to never underestimate the small acts of certainty that we can do for ourselves like at the moment we are we really don't have any control of, of how COVID spans out or what our lives will look like in the kind of grand, grand sense of it. But the small things I've been doing that I've just realized like, oh, this is subconsciously like making my bed every day. And I've never made my bed every day in my life. And now I'm suddenly making my bed every day. And kind of structuring my day a certain way like having lunch at a particular time or having a little afternoon treat at particular time really things that just seem so insignificant and little and small and I just think sometimes the answer when we've got big questions and big things happening we feel like the the answer has to be huge and the only way we can tap into any sense of certainty is once COVID's gone or once we of course, a lot of people have a lot of job insecurity or have been let go. Or like, Once that has hopefully resolved itself, and of course those things are really important and significant, but we can, in the meantime of the, the big kind of tick boxes of making ourselves feel secure, like to look after ourselves financially, for example, there are those smaller things we can do. And a lot of the time we're really working with our nervous system, with our bodies, and that responds to the small acts and I guess I say that is a process of tending, right? Like just a small acts of tending to our, our nervous system to some degree can have huge amounts of benefits to then be able to sit with the other things. And if pondering uncertainty right now is really not working for you, don't do it. Like there's no, there's no shoulds here. And that can be another, another way just to force ourselves into thinking, oh, well, because a lot of my work is sitting with the truth. Sometimes a conflict of truth can be denial, but the more I read about denial is understanding that denial is, can be a really important softening and supportive kind of container for us until we have more resources to deal with what we're denying. So a little bit of denial is is healthy as well.
0: Yeah, it's, It is. I love that as an act of tending. I would. I would totally agree. I found that doing things like making my bed has made a huge difference for me as well. Because something that I've been noticing in the face of all of this uncertainty is the grief of problem solving as my like most fancy and effective coping mechanism. And without information, like there's no there's there's no way for me to solve my way out of what the economy is going to do to my business or whether or not my kids are going to be starting school in the fall or just all of these big looming questions that really impact my need for safety. But in the interim, it's like, well, what do we do? Okay. If we can't, if we can't problem solve. And, and for me realizing just how much, just how much stock I put in my ability to problem solve over the course of my life. And when that's taken away, I know I felt I just felt so adrift for a long time before I started to realize like okay what what I want is some kind of certainty and what I need is some kind of certainty and the place that I'm looking for it it's not it's just not possible so like where where is it possible and even noticing things like the sun's going to rise every day that little bit of certainty and I remember when my baby was first born and I my first baby and i had really bad postpartum depression and i was up all night every night and that certainty was so important to me then too is like the sun the sun will rise of that i can be certain and how powerful that can be and how there are things if we look you know there are things that we can count on in certain ways even when other things remain you know we're we're in the midst of a huge transition so other things are not maybe as clear or as comfortable as we would want them to be.
1: Yeah. And what kind of came to mind as well that the act of giving ourselves little amounts of certainty and in interim is whatever feels good for you. Like you said, recognizing the sun, I wouldn't have even thought about that, or the tangible kind of physical things we can do with our day with routines, but also for people that relate to the certainty and like their faith or their f- if whether that be in a spiritual or religious sense or the faith Within themselves, of what they know about themselves, what they believe about themselves, kind of their faith that they'll be okay and they'll be able to work it out when the time has comes. Like these are all ways, it doesn't necessarily even have to be kind of a physical sense. It can be esoteric and spiritual as well. And I'd say whatever resonates, whatever feels, wherever it feels like you can relax into the container of kind of a little bit of safety and a little bit of certainty, like just go there and it will be completely different for everybody.
0: Yeah. It makes me think of that post that you had on Instagram recently about being allowed to give in to what feels good. Mm. And, you know, I think zooming out to even that, that tending act of getting to know ourselves, like even getting to know what feels good and caring what feels good and. Especially in these, it's like I get laugh every, I don't laugh because it's not funny, but every time I say the words these unprecedented times, I think of this advertisement that comes up in my Spotify every single day. But these in these unprecedented times, it can feel like everything is more important than our joy. Joy is really minor in the scheme of all of the things and the people in the world who need help and the people who are out of work and all of the things that are occurring around us. And so I'm curious if you might talk about that focus and and even cultivation of joy and pleasure during times of transition.
1: Mm, I mean, it's certainly a a lesson for me um, that I'm, because I have so resisted that my whole life. (laughs) So it's interesting for me because I'm like, yeah, I don't have much wisdom there, but in the sense of, I think there's something radically, we especially, I mean, joy and feeling into what feels good on any day of the week can feel very, like, naughty in some ways. We're being so conditioned to be like, what feels good is somehow not good for us or somehow misbehaving, I guess is the word I'm looking for. So, I think even, especially then when we put that into a scenario where there's so much stuff happening, there's kind of the, can easily be the fear of the thought of like, how dare I or like how naive or silly of me to even think about doing something joyful, that I can tap into this right now because it's almost a sense of like naivety, like how can we do that? And there's the voice inside that says, do you not know what's going on in the world? Like, You can't sit and draw a picture because it feels good in the middle of the day. But then in the other sense, when we have so many restrictions on what our usual day would have looked like previously to COVID, if we do find ourselves with space where we can't control, we can't go out or we can't. Be in the achievement or production mode that we were in before. Like, why not just do something that feels good? Like, we're allowed to. And I think it's that sense, I think I hear this a lot in the conversation about grief as well that's like, you can't, this binary idea that we can't have two seemingly un- conflicting things happening at the same time. Like, if we're in grief, we can't have a good laugh at the same time or have a moment of just feeling really good and forgetting about it for a second, you know? And it's the same kind of thing, I think, with this where it's there's so much going on that, yeah, I guess it's that naivety to feel like if we tap into our joy and fun, then it somehow means that we're not getting it. And it's like, well, no, we can do both. And I think that is like joy and and the fun and the pleasure is almost like certainty in itself because you can't deny the truth of that. Like fun, like laughing or just being doing something that just makes you feel really good is kind of instinctual it comes up so i'd say just do it like notice the judgment
0: that come up when when we do well as you were talking i was thinking about how i have literally felt like this my entire life pre covid always you know that how dare i be like that un- unadulterated joy it's like you always always wanting to be present to the suffering that exists in the world and like not, not really able to give myself the permission to, to fully dip into pleasure while there's like still quote unquote work to do. And I had not completely made that connection to until you said it like during, you know, that we're experiencing this now, of course. And I was like, I have, I have, Honestly, always felt that way my whole life, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. You know, if we think about it, there is the judgment that comes up. It for me is, you know, there's a quote-unquote better use of my time and energy, and you know, my resources, whatever, my money, my um, my attention, my my abilities. Right? Like just just enjoying it or frittering it away, being frivolous, is in a good or right or just use of my energy
1: yeah it sucks and then <laughs> try doing nothing and like I mean really do nothing and see the judgments that come up with that as well because I was I was sat in the garden earlier and I was just sat and I've be, literally been on the laptop all day so but then I was like oh I should go a podcasting <laughs> oh like I should just read a little or listen to my astrology for this for the year and it's like just when we say like, oh, I'm doing nothing, like often when we're actually doing something we're reading, consuming, like and the more recently I've I've been really pushing myself to the what I feel myself is like my deeper level of resistance of just sitting and like staring at the walls or just looking out the window and realizing that oh, that feels even more intense to be like this is a waste of time. <laughs>
0: Yeah it is. It it really does kick up all of that stuff, the space, having the space. And I love how you you talk about that as holding on to holding on to the joy and the pleasure and while also holding on to the grief. And I often think about this when it comes to care. We don't want to have too much of it, but like it's not, you know, it's not pie. It's not like if I eat up my own care that I'm taking it out of somebody else's mouth, right? Like this idea that there's not enough care to go around and so I should I should re- resist or like hold back on what I'm giving to myself because somebody else might not be able to and whatever by by any kind of circumstance like that that scarcity mindset that there's only a certain amount to go around and so I shouldn't nourish myself or shouldn't prioritize my own joy because then I might be having too much of it of this limited thing.
1: Mm, interesting. See, I think then that response is probably, I'm sure completely resonant to lots of people, but maybe also like unique to your own kind of inner stuff. Cause for me, I've never, I don't feel like that, but I do definitely have the voice saying like, you're just not worth it. <laughs> I know that sounds so harsh, but, and that's at its core. Like I don't say that to myself, but it will be, oh, well, this is more important or this person needs me right now or it's just not worth the time or it's just not important or I don't need it that for me is my biggest kind of resistance to anything that is solely for me unless of course it's solely for me with a purpose like this is probably why I was addicted to self-development for 10 years because on the surface it looked like oh it's just for me but really it was like tell me show me how to be better show me how to sh- See what my work is in the world so I can do my work. And granted, I'm glad for that because I I have found my work and I love my work. But at the same time, I would be lying to myself if I ever pretended like that was just for me. That was always driven by a motivation to have an
0: outcome. Mm -hmm. So, what do you do when that voice, you know, even if it doesn't come up directly, right? That you're not worth it, voice. But what do you do now when that story? shows up for you.
1: It's a tricky one because I'm, I'm still so in it. So, so like, I'd like to say that I like kept it. I mean, I'm in the stage now, I think, cause I've done a lot of work on like my kind of the traditional sense of like inner wound work and that I'm worthless is one of my core wounds. So that really, for me at the moment, it's, it's not necessarily transforming that, but it's really picking it up and noticing it. So I'd like to say that I notice it and then choose differently, but. The reality is that's the process. So at the moment, what I'm doing is, is just noticing, like, oh, there it is there that's coming. And I think instead of it necessarily being instinctual to go and do something else, I kind of persuade, have to be in persuasion mode with myself a lot of the time to persuade myself to do something different. And for me, I'm a I am a workaholic, and because I do have an online business, I can easily find stuff to do all day. So part of it is for myself trying to prepare for the obvious state that I will not tend to myself properly so it will be for example like setting certain very strict work modes and like putting an alarm on my phone and slamming the laptop down because I know otherwise I will just continue and sit there until my eyes get so dry and I'm like parched because I haven't got up for water (laughs) so it's, it's kind of more like that at the moment I'm like I know I'm not gonna I know I'm not going to change once I'm in that state. So I'm going to try and like preempt it and set some boundaries. I can trust myself more. So yeah, it's kind of like a little split split voice in my head, <laughs> like the, the parent mode, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm so grateful to you for sharing that because I think a lot of us are in that spot of getting that awareness and, and noticing where those stories show up and you know, I love that concrete tending of like I know I know it's you know such an act of care for ourselves. I know that this is going to show up for me and so how might I preempt it or put some structure around it or set that alarm on my phone to help give myself what I need. So, I would love to talk to you a little bit about self like the idea of self abandonment and especially where it occurs in how how it shows up with our needs you know how we diminish ourselves how we make ourselves small how we're disconnected from ourselves and what it might look like to be with what is and and build that bridge back to to being in relationship with ourselves because what i find in a lot of my work is that we're abandoning ourselves in so many ways and are conditioned to do so and Divesting from that to be in relationship with ourselves feels so big, but that self abandonment is so pronounced and, and also validated, right? We're, you know, the workaholic, for example, for just one, right? Like, I, when I work a lot, I am applauded a lot. That choice to override my needs to continuing to over deliver is one that, that I'm celebrated for on so many fronts. And so I'm wondering like how we start to shift that a little bit for ourselves and what it might look like to remain by our own side.
1: Oh, self-abandonment does get me juiced up, actually. First of all, I would say like, how I'm personally defining self-abandonment at the moment is, is the conscious dismissal of what we're holding inside in the way we do it, it's not like we're going to say, I'm just going to self-abandon right now, but it will be conscious in the state of anytime we have a reaction to something, for example, someone asks us if we can do something for them and our instinct is like, oh no, I don't have, I just don't want to, don't have capacity or I don't even like you. (laughs) I don't want to be here. And then we, it's like, sometimes it's so instant. i we're like, yeah, sure. Love to. So it's really, really, really picking it out and it's, yeah, any time that we override our initial wants, desires, like basically just anything we have, like our, our initial response to something that could be emotional, it could be like a physical gut response, it could be what we're thinking, it can be what we're feeling, just anything of like self in that sense, like emotional self, you know, the physical or even spiritual if we're talking about values and then choosing something different because of end to story you know like and that is where the self-abandonment is and like you said like I I think we're doing this all day (laughs) to some degree whether it be you know as soon as we wake up in the morning oh I really need an extra half an hour no I shouldn't and we get out of bed you know step one (laughs) well then we go down and think what do I want for breakfast it's like "Mm." if anything like I don't even want to eat oh but I should eat you know all these times, these little things. And then it builds up to massive things. Like I don't want to be in this relationship anymore, but the thought of not being is terrifying. So I'm just going to pretend that what I need, what I want or pretend that my needs are like just my own, my own shit or my own insecurities are not that important. I'll go work on that so I can stay in this relationship or doing work that is completely out of our integrity and, you know, just to say on that as well, there are some times when we self-abandon, of course, for safety, we self-abandon because we need to pay the bills. I think there's some element of weaving in there that it's like, it's like the consciousness of it. Because when we consciously choose, we're, we're, we're nurturing more sovereign states for ourselves. So it's not to say that in an idealistic world that we, we never self-abandon, but it's, it's more like it's the, that consciousness and I think actually in many ways that there's an avoidance, we have an avoidance collectively to only really admit the truth to ourselves when we know that we can change it quickly. So for example, being in a job we hate or that's out of our integrity just simply because we have to pay the bills is really hard. But I think what's harder is pretending we love it day by day because it's just like slowly kills our soul. So I think there, or in the relationship as well, that if we have chosen, say, I don't know, I don't have kids, but say there is a conscious choice to say, we have young children, we're going to stay together until the end of the year to sell up the house. You know, whatever it is, it's like let's just get honest with ourselves when we are on the surface self-abandoning, because I think then when we get honest with what we're doing and why we can free up space. And in some ways, I'd say then we're not actually self-abandoning and we're just making a conscious, sovereign choice. And when we stop pretending that we're happy or pretending that what we're doing is what we want, we can then just free up space to one, start really getting clear on what we're doing and why. We can start taking responsibility for making different choices when we can. And then when we still have to do the thing we don't want to do, we can then, when we stop pretending... We can just free up space to say, okay, I'll do it for between X hour and X hour, and then after that, my energetic ties are cut, and I'm gonna now do something fun for myself, whatever it is. I feel like I rambled a bit, but <laughs> that's where I'm at.
0: No, it's great. I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about that piece about you know avoiding being in. Right relationship and being truthful with ourselves, unless we can, it's something we can handle or take care of or fix quickly. Uh, Because as you were talking right before that, I was thinking about that piece of how one way of self-abandoning is that we don't even enter into the conversation with ourselves because we know we're not going to like what we have, what we hear. It's going to be more than we can handle in an afternoon, or that it's going to be really complicated for our our life as we've carefully constructed it. And so we don't even show up for the conversation. And that too is a self abandonment.
1: Oh, totally. Pretending we don't have a self to even abandon.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's amazing. The amount of people that I've talked to about needs who just say, well, like, I just, I just honestly have never thought about it or I just honestly don't think about it. I don't think about what I need. I don't think about whether or not my needs are being met. I I'm busy. I've got other stuff going on. And it's always so compelling for me because of course, human beings, you know, it's not, that's why I named this podcast needy, right? Because it's not needy people who are who have needs. We all, we all have needs. And yet this whole idea of neediness is this this construct to be avoided at all costs. Nobody wants to be that needy person. But we are all needy people what's happening when we're avoiding our needs. And also if avoiding our needs is the only way that we can that our we can hold our lives together as we want them to be.
1: Yeah, totally. And then what comes to mind is that like that's just not fun. <laughs> like I just think I don't know how to explain it properly, but well, yeah, like you said, we all have needs and pretending we don't does not diminish or erase our needs all that happens is that they're just unfulfilled needs and it's our responsibility to seek fulfillment of those needs like that is on us we can't pretend we don't have needs deny them and then what happens is we build we build up anger resentment sadness like frustration and then we look you know well my Often we then look to other people, especially in our close relationships, be like, well, I'm not they're not fulfilling me, like, or my job isn't fulfilling me. And it's like this kind of sense that like that somehow we're not responsible for actually asking for what we want, or that other things and other people should just I guess now it's hitting me because if we say we don't have any needs, it go it kind of becomes this subconscious idea that, well, if we don't have needs, then things should just fulfill us because it's just like two things coming together, A and B. Like there's not, like there's no complexity there, and that's a really tricky place to be because then, yeah, like I kind of said, it can easily build into into resentment, burnout, depression. You know, if we do this for years, and then suddenly we're completely in this space of overwhelm. That's like I'm just miserable, and I don't even know why, and I. Often, do think that's just the culmination, like specifically when we're talking about unfulfilled needs of all those small times that we just haven't even considered that we we
0: have any. Mm-hmm. That sort of like rom-com relationship idea of if they really love me, they'll know what I need, or if it's really a good fit, or it's meant to be, it'll be easy. Yeah, and how much tr- like relationship trouble we get in with when we're when we're believing those ideas about that's what it means to be that's like what a right fit that's what good that's what is good that's what love looks like.
1: Because then, if we're even aware of our needs as well, like we we certainly know when our needs aren't getting there. we feel it, we respond, we could get it might manifest in a relationship with just pure irritation that someone does something a certain way. And if we're not recognizing it as a need and I'll just take something really, like washing up, <laughs> it's always a good one to start an argument. Say it's like, I just think that the washing up should be done straight after dinner. I don't like to wake up, put it in the morning, for example. And it's like without recognizing that that is actually just a preference of mine, however we want to, be, or need, depending on how you're defining needs. But if I don't recognize it, it's that's like something coming from me, from my, my wants, then it's easy to slip into thinking that that's just the way things should be. That's just the right way to do it. And the other person, if they don't do it that way, that there's something wrong with them, they're inconsiderate, they don't love me, all these kind of things that we're basically just throwing onto them. Because when we also recognize what needs we have, we also recognize one that there is not a right way and a wrong way, it's just our way and their way. And it then opens up so much space to... Stop getting into this completely useless binary of who's right and who's wrong, and just say, Well, how can we weave our needs together? How can we negotiate? How can we both thrive? (laughs) Whether it needs something as small as little lifestyle things to then bring in the conversation about bigger lifestyle things or choices. Because, and that's like with death awareness, my what I talk about as well. It's like it's all these small, not small because it's not to say they're not significant or meaningful, or meaningful to us, but these places where we have a little bit more capacity to look at it, this is all practicing. And practicing recognizing our smaller needs and how we manage a home is then helping us to then when we have a difference of where city or country we want, you want to live in and all these kind of bigger conversations.
0: It's just so, so important. And I was going to ask you to to kind of wrap up that, our conversation with some, a starting point for us, but it seems like you're giving us such a great starting point right there in finding ways to practice turning towards ourselves and prioritizing our preferences in those small ways builds up our ability to do that in larger ways. Could you expand on that at all to, if there's anything else that you need to say about it (laughs) to... Just help people with that starting point, especially if they're thinking like, I'm in that place of feeling really bad and really just like stretched and overwhelmed and sad and like the angry and resentful because I've been denying my, my needs for such a long time. And where do I begin?
1: Yeah. It's begins slowly. (laughs) And it also like, I think the question like, what do I want? And I know that is the simplest but biggest question ever but if we're going to talk about the practice and the smaller steps it's of course initially we go straight to like what do I want my life to look like what do I want my palms to look like but just come down really 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 slow and ask yourself start asking yourself that every day so when you wake up you know what do I want what do I want to eat and get out of all kind of autopilot things or what do I not want and we can start logging this in our brain or if you want to start journaling about it and We build up a little understanding of just checking in with ourselves. And while, you know, half of those things will just be situational and not necessarily big eye opening moments, there will be nuggets of wisdom that come in, say, with the washing up, for example, like, I want the washing up to be done here. Like, and then releasing judgment of it. Let's just start looking for the things. And then that might then a little later open up to, you know, I want to feel more emotionally supported in this relationship or that relationship i don't want to work for my boss anymore you know like these kind of things and then on the back side of that we can then start to see like where are our needs where are requirements for engaging and i would say then acting on them is quite advanced because i think just cut cut all of our self some slack because and understand that just because we then see that we want something It doesn't mean we have to immediately go out and get that or change our life to fit that. It also doesn't mean that it's even possible for us right now. So I think before you even start tapping into yourself to ask what you want, be really clear that you might not like the answers. And if it feels too much, pause and stop. Attend to yourself because we're also in this kind of culture of immediacy and thinking that everything has to happen straight away or even more so than that that that, like the end goal is the only beneficial spot but then we think we just get there and that's that but it's it's really recognizing that that little journey of understanding ourselves is is really magical if we if we allow it to be and just kind of be in that present state of awareness rather than jumping to well if what does it to want this thing
0: Oh, thank you, Lucy. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us and just everything that you put out into the world. I'm so grateful to have you in my orbit. Where can people find you? Where do you like to hang out online?
1: Definitely on Instagram. You can find me at Lucy May Taylor. Um yeah, I post that. And yeah, next week I've actually well, the first of June I'm launching an online school. So we can grab you can gravitate around there, which will be it's called Mortal Wisdom and it's gonna be really accessible, little mini courses, workshops, masterclasses each month around pretty much everything we've been talking about.
0: Awesome. And you also have a podcast launching in June, yes?
1: Oh, you know about that, do you? Oh yeah, I've been exploring. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, classes, podcast. I do have a podcast launching in June, co-hosted with the brilliant James Olivia Chu-Hillman.
0: I'm freaking out.
1: <laughs> and they are a relational life and leadership coach. And it's the podcast is called Responsible. There's nothing out there yet. So if you follow me on Instagram, Lucy May Taylor, you will see the notification when that comes up. But we're going to be talking all about what it means to be responsible and basically get our needs met in our intimate
0: relationships awesome so, yeah well, thanks for pushing that one yeah i will be including links to all of the things and thank you lucy
1: well, thank you so much it's been a really engaging and thought-provoking conversation
0: thanks for listening to the needy podcast with mara glatzel if you'd like my support and learning how to nourish your needs dance on over to the com to sign yourself up for Revive, a gorgeously free five-day course chock full of real self-care and daily tending. If you love today's episode, pretty please leave us a review on iTunes and join us next week. And as always, permission loves company. So if there's a human in your life that you think can benefit from this conversation, I would be so grateful if you shared it with them. Thank you.